Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 5, Episode 34, produced by Jesus Centered Resources, which is essentially me, Rick Lawrence. So, and that's all it is. There is no office. There's no staff. There's not even a thing. There's just this name out there in the cloud, Jesus Centered Resources. It's kind of what I do, so I, I, I thought of the best name I could think of to describe what I do, and there you have it. So, Again, my name is Rick Lawrence. I'm, a, I'm an author, a ministry leader. I'm lots of things. And uh, the most recent uh, th- project I've been working on is about to be released, the Jesus Centered Daily. It's a daily devotional that I spent two years writing. I think it's the richest, um, most creative and in-depth project I've ever taken on in my entire writing trajectory. And I'm up to about 40 books that I've authored or co-authored or edited now. So um, that's a lot of books under the bridge. (laughs) And the Jesus Centered Daily is my little darling, uh, my little bouncing baby that actually isn't quite born yet. Uh, October 6th is the birth date of the Jesus Centered Daily. But if you want your copy before then, before the public can get a copy, you can get one. You just have to join the launch team which is really easy, by the way. The only, you get all these benefits and only one requirement that you simply write a review on Amazon of the book during that week, the week of October 6th, because that's when uh, Amazon's uh, algorithms are paying attention to um, who's getting the book and what they think of the book. Those algorithms naturally promote um, a book that's getting more attention. So that's how it works. The shrewdness means studying how things work and then leveraging them for a redemptive purpose. That's my uh, definition of the kind of shrewdness that Jesus practiced and what he wants us to practice. So this is just being shrewd. It's wanting more people to get their hands on a daily devotional that will draw them into a tighter, deeper orbit around Jesus in their life. That is a redemptive purpose. So, so, Um, All you have to do to join the launch team and get your copy of the book early is go to my website, the Jesus, just jesuscenteredaily.com, jesuscenteredaily.com. You'll see a button there that says, join the launch team. Click on the button. It'll take you to a little screen. It'll collect some information um, and you, you'll get a copy of the book, $5 off uh, and you'll get free shipping. Um, So what a deal. And you'll get it early. (laughs) So just join the launch team. I would really love it if you would. Um, And then add your voice uh, the week of October 6th on Amazon. Uh, It's a pretty easy book to review, by the way, because all you have to do is read, read, you know, what, five, six, seven, ten of these daily devotionals to get a sense of its impact on your life. Um, Or you can read all of it if you want, I guess. But but you don't have to read the whole book in this case to post a review of it. Uh, Easy peasy. So please head on over to jesuscenteredaily.com. And while there, you can also uh, click on a little button I installed there. But I, I made this website myself. You'll, you'll see that as soon as you're there. I did my darndest, but, you know, not my day job. 
So, but while you're there, you'll see another button for that where you can click and get a free 10-day sampler, the Jesus Center Daily. Um, <clears throat> just click it and it'll download for you. You can get a taste of it ahead of time. And if you want to, you can uh, check out my intentionally amateurish video that I created and posted on the site as well. You'll get a little overview from me and why I think this book is so important. So there you have it. Um, I'll also put a link to joining the launch team on our podcast episode page. You just go to paying ridiculous attention to Jesus.com and you look for season five, episode 34. So this is the 12th and last episode in a series that I've been calling In His Image. We're exploring that, that phrase in Genesis where God says he cre created man in his image, which obviously doesn't mean our physical reflection. It means he created us in his essence. And Jesus tells us over and over again, if you want to understand the essence of God, just look at him. When we understand Jesus's essence, we understand God's essence. So what we're exploring is what makes Jesus, Jesus, and how we're required to reflect that essence in our own life. So today, we're, in this last episode of this series, we're going to explore grow. And next week, we're going to begin, begin a new series that I'm calling Present Concerns. We'll target issues that are making us angry, sad, frustrated, hopeless. Um, and then we're going to explore how Jesus wrestled with these same issues in his life and his culture. And joining me for this series will be a very special guest. You'll want to... Uh, You'll want to check that out <laughs> when, when the next episode of this podcast comes out because it will be a very special guest and uh, this person will be with me for the series. So I'm excited about that. I'll leave you with that little mystery. So uh, uh, in the image of God, um, how do we see grow as part of the essence of who Jesus is and what role did growth and growing play in his personality and character and the way he interacted with people. And how is that reflected in our own life, this whole idea of growth? All of us want to grow, but if you think about the experiences and seasons of your life where you actually grew, you might take a second look at that whole, I love growth thing, <laughs> because usually we grow during difficult seasons of life. And uh, that's why I thought I'd start off today's episode by reading one of the devotions from that new daily devotional, the Jesus Center Daily. This one is actually from December 19th, so it's something to look forward to. And here we go. Washington Post food columnist Ben Gilberti explains the difference between a bulk vintage and a superior wine. Here's what he says. Great wines come from low-yielding vineyards planted in marginal climates in the poorest soils. Though hard on the vines, these tough conditions are good for the wine because vines that are distressed must work harder to produce fruit, which leads to fewer but more concentrated and flavorful grapes. By contrast, the vines used for bulk wines have it easy. The fertile soils and the ideal climates in such regions are great for producing tons of grapes to fill up the bulk fermentation tanks in parentheses, you might wonder, where are these fertile soils and ideal climates? Think California wine country. <laughs> That's what he's really referencing. So the, these regions are great for producing tons of grapes to fill up the bulk fermentation tanks, but they're not at all great for producing the complex 
intense flavors needed to make great wine. And what is great for producing those complex, intense flavors? This is what he says, tough conditions, low yielding vineyard, vineyards planted in marginal climates where the vines are stressed and they have to work harder to produce fruit. That's, that's the kind of context that produces really, really great wine. So continuing with the devotion, the tough conditions that produce rare wine also produce martyrs and saints and beautiful messes like you and me. Paul tells us that we are, quote, struck down but not destroyed, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. So uh, during my summer as a camp counselor for at-risk kids, I discovered one of them had stolen a butcher knife, intending to murder me in my sleep. On the day he planned to do it, I discovered the hidden knife. On my first two-day break, I drove into town and walked for hours in silence. Jesus, I knew, was forming in me a new capacity for loving others in the marginal climate of my soul. In my weakness, he was making me strong. That's the end of the devotion. And then there's some other little things that go along with each devotion that are a question and a thought from Jesus and then a five senses thing to do. So that's the structure of the devotional. But that's that's the, the little entry from December 19th. And boy, do I remember that season of my life so well. It's funny how uh, in seasons of our life, when we're really growing rapidly, because we've been planted in uh, low yielding vineyards, in marginal climates and poor soil, uh, it's amazing how we distinctly remember those seasons. Like I, I remember walking down the sidewalk exactly in that scene that I'm talking about at the end of the devotion. I remember walking down that sidewalk and, and not wanting to open my mouth, just wanting to be quiet and silent and recognizing that I was way in over my head and that what had almost just happened was frightening and that if I was going to make it through the summer, I was desperately in need of Jesus's presence and his help in my life. I was desperately dependent on him every single moment of every day during that summer and never more than right after I discovered I was about to be murdered. So, <laughs> so I just remember the silence that settled over me, a, a kind of a silence that is like a little child climbing up on his dad's lap um, and just being content to be quiet there. That's what it was like. So, when we're plunked down into these challenging, weakness-revealing situations, um, the, the reason that we're plunked down into these, I think, is because the leverage that happens in those seasons of life prompt growth, don't they? I mean, we, we can all point to them in our lives. But, of course, that's not the only way we grow. We also need care and tending, right? So uh, the five care and tending imperatives that every plant needs are these. And we'll get back to these in just a few minutes, but I want to tease you with them first. These five, these five things are imperative for the care and tending of a growing plant. They need sunshine, number one. Number two, they need soil. Number three, they need boundaries. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Number four, they need to be watered well, but gently and not too much. And then the fifth thing that all of these plants that grow need is fertilizer. So again, we'll get back to these in just a minute. But, but first, let's go back to that great wines parable I told you before 
from Ben Gilberti, <clears throat> the Washington Post food columnist. Let's go back to that. I'm calling it a parable because it's a story that has a deeper meaning attached to it, a kingdom of God meaning. So our growth, the story is telling us that our growth is tied to the development of grit in us. Our ability, as he says in his, uh, in his story, that the, the, these tough conditions, the reason they produce rare wine is, is because the, the, the vines have to work harder. They're stressed. And so they have to work harder to produce fruit. And so they create these complex flavors in their grapes. So what that parable is telling us is that growth is really tied directly to the development of grit in us. And I wrote a whole book about this idea of grit, but in the context of our relationship with Jesus, it's called Spiritual Grit. I'll put a link to this book on our podcast page. Again, paying ridiculous attention to Jesus.com. Epi uh, season five, episode 34, I'll put a link to spiritual grit on that page. You can also just head over to Amazon and, and look it up, spiritual grit. The whole book is about how is Jesus, what is our role in partnering with Jesus to develop uh, grit that is authored and, and promoted by him in our life. So it really came out of uh, the the kind of groundbreaking book that uh, Professor Angela Duckworth wrote called Grit. And when that book came out and was an international bestseller, it just kind of sort of took over the world for a while. Uh, people were just fascinated with this whole idea of grit. But um, I got the idea for writing spiritual grit out of something Angela Duckworth actually said on her TED talk, where she was describing the whole dynamic of grit. You know, from a research perspective. And in that TED talk, she said this, to me, the most shocking thing about grit is how little we know about building it. Every day, parents and teachers ask me, how do I build grit in kids? And the on honest answer is, I don't know. And it just intrigued me that she had spent a good chunk of her life just focused on researching this very important uh, element to a successful life, grit. And yet she had no way of telling parents and teachers how to grow it in their kids. And the reason why is I think grit growing is a sacred process. It's a difficult process. If you're going to plant intentionally your, your, uh, your vines in a difficult marginal climate with bad soil, and you know you're doing it so that you can create a greater wine, well, there's a lot of risk involved in that. We're not quite ready or willing to pull the trigger on that. So, and also I say it's sacred because there's something about the transformation of ugly into beauty that always involves Jesus. And so secular researchers, how are they going to venture into those deep waters? So um, I, I go to a class, at least I did until the pandemic hit at our health club. It's called CX works. Um, and it's a, it's a class that's totally focused on what you call your core. Your core is uh, your chest and your abdomen, the, the core part of your body where you're trying to strengthen that core, which is very important for overall fitness and overall strength. And this class is a short one. It's only 30 minutes long, but it feels like two hours because the entire class is essentially the trainer is trying to build up your core strength through resistance exercises. 
Now, so the, the most, well, maybe one of the most common forms of resistance exercises that you probably know about is called planking, where you put your forearms on the ground and then you put your toes, you stretch out, you know, kind of on your stomach and then you lift up and put your forearms on the ground and then you put your toes on the ground so that your whole core is lifted off the ground and you just stay there for as long as you can until you can collapse. Um, and you, what you're doing is you're keeping that core part of your body in tension until you can't anymore. And that's just one of the resistance exercises that they do in, in CX Works. This resistance training builds our core strength by taking us really to the end of our capacity so that we can stretch the boundaries of our capacity, right? That's how we grow. And likewise, Jesus uses resistance to strengthen our core identity so that the challenges that we're facing in our life produce hope in us not resignation or despair, because it easily could go that way. When you feel like you, you're in the middle of resistance training in your life, pushed beyond your boundaries, it's also true that that can lead to just simply despair. Like, I'm overwhelmed. I don't know what else to do. Jesus wants to use the, that tension in our resistance training to strengthen us. He doesn't want it to go to waste. He wants it to lead to strength in us because that strength then will produce fruit in our life, not just for ourselves, but others around us. We will have more gifts to give and we will give them better if our core identity is strengthened. That's what Jesus is hoping to do. So the bottom line is we need resistance in our life to grow. So to go further than the researchers can really take us means we have to do things that invite transformation or resistance in ourselves and in others. So we may struggle to understand how to help ourselves and others grow in our capacity for spiritual grit. We may struggle like Angela Duckworth struggles, but Jesus has no such struggle. In fact, he's, he's quite comfortable in this territory. He's quite comfortable intentionally testing the limits of our perseverance. And he is with every single person he ever interacts with. Think about this as a filter that uh, look at every person that Jesus interacts with, no matter what the setting is. And if you're just, just look for the way in which he tries to bring resistance training into that encounter. How is he pushing the envelope with that person? How is he pushing them to their boundary level with that person? Even when that person is in need, how is he doing that? Um, so uh, just a couple of quick examples. The in the John 9 story of the man born blind, one of my favorite stories in all of scripture, and we've talked a lot about this story on, on this podcast. This is where uh, Jesus goes up to the man born blind, or they, they, he asks him to come forward. And uh, he smears this mixture of dirt and spit on the man's eyes. And then he tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is outside of town, and his sight will return. And we read this story. This is a perfect mud puddle story because we meet, read this story and we don't really slow down and wallow in it and understand, well, why the heck would Jesus go to such lengths to make this hard on the man? First of all, um, in, in, the, in a public square, he's spitting in the dirt and smearing that spit mud on the man's face. It feels humiliating for a man who's already marginalized. And then he's telling this man, Find your way outside of town. I'm not going to take you there, but find your way to the Pool of Siloam outside of town. Bathe in it, and then your sight will return. Well, of course, if we're wallowing in the story, we understand Jesus could have healed him any way he wanted to, in much easier ways than that. And he asked the man to do something really hard. 
instead of that. The man's in need. He's blind. Why would you, why would you make something harder for a man who's born blind and been marginalized his whole life? Why would you do that? Um, what, what's the point behind these unnecessary uh, stipulations that Jesus makes? Well, whenever we see Jesus doing something that doesn't make immediate sense to us, the question to ask is, why? Why? Why is he doing it? Well, let's get at the heart of why he's doing this. And the answer is always, the answer to that question why is always because he loves the person in front of him. And he sees the outer need the person has, but he also sees a secondary need. This man, uh, after spending his entire life as a blind beggar by the side of the street, needed to um, offer his own strength and courage and risk in his healing, to have some agency over what happens to him, that it wasn't just somebody um, giving to him something, it was him being invited to also risk and put forth his own strength and courage in the process of being healed. It gives the man dignity to be a part of the solution to his life. And Jesus, because he loves the man so much, is unwilling to let the man go and be healed of his blindness, but not also be strengthened in his dignity. And so Jesus gives him a way to participate that builds his dignity. Another example of, of uh, Jesus intentionally testing the limits with every person he ever meets is the story in John chapter five of the crippled man who's been by the pool of Bethesda for 38 years. We've talked about this story a lot on the podcast as well, because it's such a perfect story to talk about this. And this man is waiting night and day for an angel to touch the pool. We don't know what this is all about other than kind of a myth surrounding this pool that, that if you are the first one to get into this pool of Bethesda after the angel ripples the waters, then you'll find healing. And the man has been there for 38 years, uh, a very long time. And he's never able to get in the pool first because he has no one to help him. So Jesus sees this man and he asks him a question that either seems silly or just completely lacking in compassion. He says, would you like to get well? <laughs> well, the man's been there for 38 years because he'd like to get well. But Jesus just ignores that and ignores how the, that question could sound offensive. And he asks it anyway. And the man says, yes, yes, I want to get well. So again, Jesus is doing something hard and it really insensitive. Why? Because he wants this man to participate in this. He wants this man to um, shunt aside the offense of Jesus's question and, and instead grab for his healing, to, to participate in it. And then Jesus says, stand, pick up your mat and walk. So we know Jesus is a master grit grower. Um, we see it in every encounter. And he's inviting us to learn from him. He's inviting us to embrace this way of life and the value of growing grit in our lives. Um, we need his resistance training in our life because we are so often in situations where we need more strength than we have. Aren't you? I am right now. I need more strength than I have. And I need Jesus to grow strength in me. And this is how he does it. Every day we face tough challenges that push us to either give up or give in. And our growth depends on how we respond to those situations. So because Jesus is a resistance trainer, um, 
uh, you could say that his love language is spiritual grit. He'll do whatever it takes to help us to grow because he loves us and he wants us to experience what he says in John 16 is abundant joy. Grit, strength produced through these seasons of life when we're the vine planted in the marginal climate and terrible soil, these things, they, the, the other side of them produces abundant joy in us because strength produces joy. Um, we have a settled sense of our identity coming out of these things. We are not afraid of the, uh, the waves and the wind in our life. Um, we are less afraid of the unknown in our life. We have a strength that is becoming more unassailable in our life. And this brings us great joy. So when we draw our strength from the well of Jesus's passionate heart and learn to rely on the helper, the spirit of Jesus in our life to empower us, we discover firsthand in our lives, one of Jesus's most blunt truths. And uh, this is what he says, what is impossible for people is impossible is possible with God. Now he says this right after he has asked the rich young ruler to sell everything he has and give the money to the poor and follow him. And the rich young ruler goes off chagrined and just, uh, you know, just so discouraged because he can't do it. And Jesus says, that's really hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples say, well, how can this even happen for anybody then? And then Jesus's response is what is impossible for people is possible with God. And truly, our growth, our growth as broken, messed up sheep is quite impossible, quite impossible, apart from our submission to Jesus's resistance training. So how do we do that? How do we submit? How do we invite it? So just a couple of, yeah, I mean, this is not rocket science. I'm not saying this is easy, but understanding it is not rocket science. How do we do it? We accept hard things in our life. Instead of in, instead of branding them as evil, we accept these hard things and we invite them to prompt us toward a deeper dependence. Instead of railing against the hard thing, although grief and railing is part of the process, but fundamentally what we do instead of staying in that place of railing against the hard thing or even uh, going to great lengths to, to um, remove the hard thing, we let it prompt us toward a deeper connection, deeper dependence on Jesus. We simply invite his strength over and over and over again. I do this all day long, by the way. I am constantly under my breath saying to Jesus, I need your strength. Please have mercy on me. Help me, Jesus. This is beyond me. I feel overwhelmed. I need you. It's a constant um, sort of underlying poem in my life to accept the hard thing and to let it lead us toward a deeper connection and dependence on Jesus is the first thing we can do. And the second thing we can do is choose hard and, you know, put ourselves in places of resistance training. Like I go to a class called CX works where I know I'm going to be challenged in my core. Um, we can adopt a lifestyle that does the same thing that we don't shy away from resistance training. We, go to new situations, we make new relationships, we have hard conversations, we face into difficulty instead of run from it, sort of like uh, firefighters 
trying to put out wildfires right now. We, we run toward the fire instead of away from it. We choose hard, trusting Jesus to rise up in us and help us to meet that challenge, whatever it is. So we don't do it foolishly. We don't just do stupid things to make our life hard. But we also, when, when we have two forks in the road in front of us, and one sort of the easy way out, and the other one is the hard but fruitful way out, we choose the hard but fruitful. Not because we're such paragons of strength, but because we'll trust Jesus in the midst of it to help us. So now that's the, the grit, the, the marginal climate and bad soil part of the growth equation. But now let's address the caring and ten, tending part of growth. Again, those five keys to caring and tending for a plant that, that, that grows are these. Sunshine is number one. Number two is soil. Number three is boundaries. Number four is watering well, but gently and not too much. And number five is fertilizer. So let's, let's take these one, of a time, one at a time real quick. And I've got a story attached to each one of them. So the first one is sunshine. Um, that plant needs sunshine to grow. Let's go to John chapter 8, verse 12. If you're not driving right now and you want to flip over in your Jesus-centered Bible to John chapter 8, verse 12. If you don't have a Jesus-centered Bible, by the way, again, you can go to our podcast page, paying ridiculous attention to Jesus.com, episode, uh, season 5, episode 34, and look for the link to the Jesus-centered Bible, or you can just go on Amazon if you want. Look up Jesus-centered Bible. It's a unique, unique Bible that uh, just, no matter where you're reading, inexorably draws you back to Jesus through a bunch of special features we uh, created and planted in the Bible. So there you go. little uh, side note there. So open your uh, Jesus-centered Bible there to John chapter 8, verse 12. And this little heading is, is titled, Jesus, the Light of the World. And it's just one verse here. Listen to this. When you think about sunshine, when I, when, I, when I recite this verse, John 8, 12, Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you'll have the light that leads to life. And then right after this, the Pharisees, just took umbrage at this and said, who are you to say this? I mean, who gives you the authority to say this? And they argue with Jesus about his authority to say these kinds of over-the-top things. But Jesus basically says, well, if you knew God at all, you would accept what I'm saying. If you knew God, you would, you would be humble and inviting what I'm saying, but you don't know him. So, so you're, you're fighting with me about it. But Jesus is really saying a profound thing here. Every person who grows needs light. And real growth comes when we get close to the light of the world. So he says, if you follow me, if you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness. In today's uh, contemporary church climate or Christian living climate, this whole idea of following Jesus, it's kind of receded into the background, I think. We're much more interested in talking about topical things than about oh, this thing that's like a mud puddle, I'll just jump over, following Jesus. What does it mean to follow him? It means to give up your, uh, the, the uh, right that you have to guide your own life, 
and instead invest that guidance in Jesus. You, it, it means to say, instead of making my own way through the world, I'm instead going to follow what, where Jesus takes me. I'm giving over some of the agency in my life to him. Just like you would if you were in an uh, unfamiliar place, like a national park, for instance, and you wanted to go on a three-day hike. And there was a significant challenge in the hike. And so you decide to uh, follow uh, the park ranger guide. You decide to join up uh, on a group of people that are going to follow the park ranger guide on, on this three-day trip instead of just finding your own way. Well, when you do that, you give away some of your agency. It doesn't mean that you have no freedom and you can't, you're not in control of your life. But you are saying in a humble way, I trust you to guide me. And that's essentially what brings sunshine into our life. When we say to Jesus, I trust you to guide me more than I trust myself to guide me. Because I know that you know the way. And when we do that, Jesus says, if you do that, you won't have to walk in darkness. You won't have to stumble around in the underbrush. You won't fall off a cliff, really. Because you'll have light that leads to life. When we are in the presence of light, when we give over ourselves to follow him, the result of that is light in our life. And that light leads to new growth, leads to life springing up in us. Okay, so there's sunshine. What about the second one, soil? I thought it'd be interesting for us to look at Matthew 13, the Jesus and the parable of the soils. So I'm going to read through Matthew 13, 1 through 9, and then skip to verses 18 through 23. So a little interlude there in between the parable and Jesus' explanation of the parable. So uh, this is a familiar parable to you, I know. But um, again, don't jump over the mud puddle. Don't jump over this just because you think you know the story already. Think about um, the role of soil in this story, and then we'll talk about it. So starting in, verse 13, starting in chapter 13 of Matthew, verse 1. Later that same day, Jesus left the house and sat beside the lake. A large crowd soon gathered around him, so he got into a boat. Then he sat there and taught as the people stood on the shore. He told many stories in the form of parables, such as this one. Listen, a farmer went out to plant some seeds, and as he scattered them across this field, some seeds fell on a footpath, and the birds came and ate them. Other seeds fell on shallow soil with underlying rock. The seeds sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow. The plants soon wilted under the hot sun, and since they didn't have deep roots, they died. Other seeds fell among the thorns that grew up and choked out the tender plants. Still other seeds fell on fertile soil, and they produced a crop that was 30, 60, and even 100 times as much as been planted. Now, anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Well, of course, the disciples were standing there listening to this too, and they were like, probably many people in, the, in that group that Jesus was talking to, like, what does this parable mean anyway? So many of Jesus' parables were not meant to be understood in the moment. They were meant to plant themselves in the soul, and they were kind of time release with truth. They, they caused you to chew and wrestle. What does this mean? So the disciples are chewing and wrestling, and they just, because they have access to Jesus, they ask him to explain what this parable means, and here's what he says. Now listen to the explanation of the parable about the farmer planting seeds. The seed that fell on the footpath represents those who hear the message about the kingdom and don't understand it. Then the evil one comes and snatches away the seed 
that was planted in their hearts. The seed on the rocky soil represents those who hear the message, immediately receive it with joy, but since they don't have deep roots, they don't last long. They fall away as soon as they have problems or are persecuted for believing God's word. And the seed that fell among the thorns represents those who hear God's word, but all too quickly, the message is crowded out by the worries of this life and the lure of wealth, so no fruit is produced. The seed that fell on good soil represents those who truly hear and understand God's word and produce a harvest 30, 60, and even 100 times as much has been planted. So here we have a treatise on the importance of soil for growth. And let me just quickly go through the three kinds of soil that don't produce growth and then the one kind of soil that does. So the first kind of soil is hammered down footpath, hardness. There's no openness. The truth is that if we're going to grow, we're going to have to open ourselves to growth instead of close ourselves to it. Many of us are, have been closed to growth for a long time and we just haven't admitted it. If you have been closed to growth, then you are like the hard soil of the footpath. The seed has nowhere to go. Now, often difficult circumstances are the things that finally open us and open up our soil uh, that maybe has been trod down and hardened. Um, but we don't have to have painful circumstances for that to happen. We can just choose to be open. We can take our hands from tightly clasped around us to open, that we invite, we invite growth instead of resist it. So then uh, what it says happens is if we're resistant to that, to that growth, if we're closed down from it, that even the seeds that, that Jesus is trying to plant in us get stolen away by his enemy. They just never get planted. Then the second soil that also doesn't produce growth is rocky soil. And that he compares to those who hear his message. They think it's great, but they don't have deep roots. And so they don't last long. They fall away as soon as they have problems or they're persecuted for believing God's word. So the way I translate rocky soil is someone who says, yeah, I'm a Christian. I like going to, I've gone to church my whole life. Yeah, it's good. It's really helped my life. Um, that's rocky soil because the, 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 the soil that really helps things to grow is soil that is focused on a deepening intimacy with Jesus. Um, rocky soil is soil that looks Christian but isn't relational. That's another way of putting it. The rocky soil is I'm following all the rules and regulations and steps and principles but I don't have a heart relational connection to Jesus. I don't have that. I've lived outside of that. And I want, I want it that way. So rocky soil stands outside of intimacy. It's just interested in following the right principles to make life better. And Jesus says that soil is exposed right away when problems or persecution happens. It just gets wiped out. You have probably many stories in your life of people who looked like this, like this kind of soil. And when very difficult things happen in their life, that the seeds that Jesus has tried to plant in them just get wiped away. And the third soil, he says, is soil of the seed that falls among thorns. And he says that represents those who hear God's word, but then it's all crowded out by the worries and anxieties of life and the lure of wealth. So no fruit is produced. So I would call this a compartmentalized faith. So the person hears the truth about God's word, 
but that's just one compartment in their life and they have lots of compartments and the other compartments soon overshadow this one little compartment and they end up, um, you know, producing no fruit. So it's the difference between being a, uh, a chicken and a pig in the language of the Jesus centered life. The book I wrote about five years ago, it's a chapter called um, living a pig's life. And that's simply about the, uh, a, 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 a sort of a, community parable that goes like this. The chicken gives something for the breakfast, but the pig gives it gives his all. Meaning the, the chicken might provide an egg and kind of hedge its bets because it's not giving its full self to the breakfast, but the pig gives everything <laughs> to the breakfast. And, and uh, so those who are chickens, not pigs, compartmentalize their relationship with God and, and they hear God's word but they also have all these other compartments that are luring them away. And then the last soil, the seed that falls on good soil, he says, represents those who hear, understand God's word, both of those things, hear it and understand it. And really what he means by that is hearing and understanding me, because Jesus is the word of God. So we hear him, we pay attention to him, we, we begin to get an understanding of his heart, and that begins to capture us. And when we are captured by him, that's when this harvest of 30, 60, or even 100 times um, uh, grows into fruition. And you know this is true in your life if you're one of those who's crossed over to caring more about the heart of Jesus than following his principles, that that's what matters most to you, um, that you understand him, at a uh, you hear him and you understand him in a way you never did before, and you're captured by his heart you know that in your life, you see the, the, the produce of that 30, 60, or even 100 times as much. So this is the importance of soil in the caring and tending of our growth. The next one is boundaries. Number three is boundaries. And I'll, I'll take you here to Matthew 7, 6. Matthew 7, 6. This is just a short, one of the shortest, I don't know if you want to call it a parable, a metaphor, a wise saying, but I just love this. This comes up in my, in my everyday conversation all the time, this little parable. It's the parable of the pearls before pigs. Matthew 7, verse 6. Here we go. Here's Jesus. Don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. They'll trample the pearls and then turn and attack you. Don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. Of course, those pigs won't understand what those pearls are. They have no sense of their value, so they'll trample them, and then they'll be bothered to even throw them in their pen, and they'll turn and attack you. And I love this little parable. So um, it's important here to remember what this category is about, boundaries. What that means is the plants need space around them. They can't be overcrowded with other plants, or they're not going to th thrive. They need uh, space to grow. And in, and the way I'm translating that into this little parable Jesus tells is um, have boundaries around what is uh, treasured in your heart. Um, be wise about creating space around you to trust those who are worth your trust and to uh, 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 kind of keep your distance from or keep space from those who you know are not worthy of your trust. Don't give what is treasured inside the vulnerable places in you to people who cannot value and respect that treasure. Don't put your heart out there 
to people who have proven that they don't treasure your heart because your boundaries will be crossed when you do that. It's important to be vulnerable and open and honest and authentic in our lives. But it's also important to be discerning about who we are open with. We need boundaries to grow. If we don't create space around ourselves, healthy, holy space around ourselves to grow, then we can't grow. If we let people who are pigs and don't recognize our pearls to get, get too close to our treasure, it'll be really hard to grow. So there's boundaries. Number four, water well, but gently and don't overwater. So here I've tied this to the, the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Watering well, but gently and not overwatering. So let's just read through this very familiar story from John chapter four. It's a longish story. It's uh, verses one through 30 of John four and a familiar one. But again, slow down, pay attention, think about what it means to water well and gently, but not over water in this story. So Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John, though Jesus himself didn't baptize him, his disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee and he had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually he came to a Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. Well, the woman was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. So she said to Jesus, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you're speaking to, you'd ask me and I'd give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? Besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Well, Jesus replied, well, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Oh, please, sir, woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come out here to get my water. Well, go and get your husband, Jesus told her. Um, I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you've had five husbands, and you're not even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshiped. Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father's looking for those who will worship him that way, for God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said, well, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who's called Christ, and when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Jesus then told her, I am the Messiah. Just then his disciples came back, and they were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? 
The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Okay. Um, to grow, if we're using ourselves as the metaphor of a plant, we need to be watered, but gently watered and not overwatered. And here I want you to think about this, this encounter Jesus has with the Samaritan woman as Jesus gently watering her. So he, he uh, first starts very gently with her, um, asking her for something practical. Give, give me a drink, please. Um, he doesn't ask a, a, a deep end question right off the bat. He asks an on-ramp question. Can you give me a drink of water? And she's kind of shocked by this because um, he shouldn't really be asking her for a drink of water. It's not done in their culture. So she starts to engage him about, um, why are you asking me for this drink? And Jesus says, well, if you only knew who was asking you, you would ask me for living water. Well, she doesn't really understand this. So right now he's intriguing her. He's doing something to cause her to invite more from him. So instead of pushing himself on her, which would not be gently watering her, instead he's saying something that invites her to invite him. I hope that makes sense. And her response is, well, you don't even have a rope or a bucket. She's still thinking very concretely. And this well is really, well is really deep. How can, you, how can you get well well water from this well? And Jesus is still speaking metaphorically with a little smile on his face. And he says, well, anyone that drinks the water from that well is going to get thirsty again. But the water I'm offering, you'll never be thirsty again. And the woman goes, well, I want some of that water. Where, where can I get it? Now she's really inviting him. Now she's, she's let down her guard and invited him in. And then Jesus asks her something that puts her back on her guard. He says, well, go and get your husband. And then she says she doesn't have one. And, she's, and then he says, you're right, you don't. And he tells her about her story. And now she's like, oh my gosh, who is this guy? He must be a prophet. And she switches the subject. Oh, if you're a prophet, uh, what can I ask a prophet? Uh, well, why is Jerusalem the only place to worship? So she's clearly distancing herself again. She's backing away from him. And Jesus' response to that is basically, hey, woman, none of that really matters. None of it matters. Um, what matters is who's standing here in front of you right now. Um, and the woman says, well, you know, I, I know the Messiah is coming. Um, and he'll explain everything to, him, to us. And then Jesus, Jesus offers the deepest invitation. I am the Messiah. And the, the woman now is at a place where she can fully invite that. He has gently watered the plant. The kingdom of God works on invitation. What I mean by that is Jesus will not force himself on us because that violates something that is he has paid for at a very high cost, which is our freedom. He has paid for our freedom and he will not violate it. All he does is invite. And that means we have to respond to that invitation. So what is Jesus inviting from you right now in your life? In the midst of your uh, season of life right now, how is he inviting you? And are you responding to the invitation or are you running away? I want to encourage you to move toward him the way this woman did, to take a risk and to move toward his invitation instead of away from it. The result of this in this woman's life is she becomes 
really the first evangelist in history, going back to her town and telling everyone she's found the Messiah. So the last one of the five things that lead to growth in a plant is fertilizer. And we're going we're gonna to get outside of the Gospels here and go to Ephesians chapter 3. So we want to flip over to Ephesians 3, 17 through 18. Um, I've titled this little segment, Growing Down. And here's what Paul says. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how deep, how high, and how deep his love is. How wide, long, high, and deep God's love is. What the roots encounter when they grow down into God's love is fertilizer that will strengthen them. The fertilizer of our growth is the love of God. And we don't experience God's love. We don't experience the love of Jesus until we begin to trust him. Our trust in him is what opens us to experience his heart. The more we trust him, the more we taste and see that his heart is good. And the more we see that his heart is good, the more we experience experientially in our life, we experience his love outside of our circumstances. Our circumstances may be terrible, but we are experiencing Jesus' love in the midst of them. That experience of his love is what fertilizes our growth and strengthens us as people. And we're desperate for a taste of that love. So how do we experience the love of Jesus? Well, we sink our roots down into him and we risk to trust him. The more we understand and see his heart and embrace the beauty of his heart, the more that naturally leads to trusting him more. And the, and the more we trust him, the more we experience his goodness. And the more we experience his goodness, the more we feel loved by him. And we're impressed by the kind of love that he offers us. And when we experience his love, that fertilizer strengthens us for whatever we're facing. There you have it, gang. So the, our growth, the, the growth in our lives is reflected two different ways. One is to move into resistance training in our life, following our guide who is Jesus into and out of those situations where we are truly challenged and where our weakness is revealed. And in the midst of those seasons, we open ourselves. We we, instead of running away, we stay, we keep moving, always at every moment, recommitting ourselves to our dependence on Jesus. That's one way. And then the other way is the care and tending of that little shoot of growth in us. And the care and tending means sunshine, soil, boundaries, watered well and gently, but not overwatered, not, a, not too much, and fertilizer, the fertilizer of God's love. Gang, thanks for listening. Um, again, you can head on over to paying ridiculous attention to Jesus.com and look for season five, episode 34, for the links that I've been mentioned uh, that I've mentioned on this episode, including joining the launch team for the Jesus Center Daily. Really love it if you would head on over there. And um, if and there'll be other links there as well, obviously. Or you can just go directly to the Jesus Center Daily website and you can join that launch team there. Um, but this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast produced uh, from ricklawrence.com. Sounds so funny to say, but yeah. 
You can subscribe to this podcast on Google Play or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And again, we'll talk again next week when we start a new series called Present Concerns. See you then.